catching a ride. Um, people of Earth, this is Prosthetic Vogon Jeltz of the Galactic Hyperspace Planning Council. As you are probably aware, plans for the development of the outlying regions of the galaxy involve the building of a hyperspace express route through your star system. And your planet is one of those scheduled for demolition. There's no point acting all surprised about it. The plans and demolition orders have been on display at a local planning office in Alpha Centauri for 50 Earth years. If you can't be bothered to take an interest in local affairs, then you don't know how to... A pathetic bloody planet. I've no sympathy at all. Rises for another exciting episode of No Driving Gloves, where Derek, John, and Will will use over 75 years combined industry knowledge to bring you a bare-knuckled view on the collector car hobby. So let's get rolling. Hope everybody enjoyed Anthony last week. It was kind of cool to have a different guest on, hear somebody new, and try to get a new rhythm to the podcast. Liked him so much, we're going to have him back, and Will got lost at SEMA in Vegas, endless halls and stuff. And What really happened out there, Will? Or are you not going to say, because what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas? I'm sorry, I can't talk about it. Then we can roll right into, Derek, did you have anything exciting happening? Hmm. Not really, no. Um, just carrying on with work as usual and all the uh, car projects at home. Of course, by the time this releases, um, well, the world will know about, and well, the world already knows about the release of the uh, new Corvette ZR1. So that's that's the big news right now in, in at work. So yeah, that was a uh, cover of Car and Driver today, as we're recording on the 8th of uh, November. That is true. So that'll be the new, uh, you know, fancy Corvette in the world of Corvettes. At least for a week or two until the mid-engine comes out, right? <laughs> <laughs> I wish I knew the answer to that. I wish I did. Oh, you know, just go ahead and tell us. Do the release on No Driving Gloves podcast. Come on, Derek. Yeah, I'm just the curator at the museum that doesn't even really have any connection to General Motors. So I'm like the last guy that knows. <laughs> I find that hard to believe. Other than that sheet that's in the back of this new mid-engine thing that says 001 for permanent display. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, if that happens, it's probably going to go straight to the Heritage Center. You mean it's not going in your garage? Well, that'd be pretty sweet. Heck yeah. But probably not. Probably not. So did you see anything interesting out there at SEMA, Will? I know you uh, were hired by... Scotty D probably at the going rate of zero dollars to be run ragged taking photos from sun up to sundown and beyond. Is there anything out there that you, you saw and you go, you know, I can do that better and I need to get a car out here again next year? Well, I, I wouldn't say that there was something out there that I said I could do better. Um, you know, there there's so many unique vehicles at SEMA every year. And, you know, the place just keeps getting busier and busier and busier i remember the first time i went out there about uh, 10 years ago um you know I, I i didn't know anybody nobody knew me and we tried to walk that whole place and uh, you know it, it's it's impossible to do and it's bigger now than it was then they're taking up they're putting tents up in parking lots and creating more indoor vendor spots they're taking part of the Westgate Hotel and create more vendor spots. And then that don't include anything that's outside 
Uh, pretty sure it's 1.2, 1.3 million square feet just, you know, inside. And I want to say probably 40, maybe 50 acres outside. I mean, it's just absolutely insane. Um, but, you know, as far as the stuff that I saw that uh, I enjoyed looking at, uh, some good friends of mine uh, at a shop called BBT Fab had a, a charger there that I really, really liked. It was white with green interior, had nickel plating on it. That was probably my favorite car at the show. Uh, I, I like... I'm not a big fan of in-your-face type stuff, and this was a real um, kind of a sneaky, subtle build that that really, really I looked at for a while. Um, and then uh, uh, Jonathan Goolsby from Goolsby Customs had a uh, 1940 Ford convertible there that is probably the best-looking 40 Ford convertible I've ever seen. Uh, the convertibles on them, the tops are just really ugly. The way they have that huge sail panel behind the B pillar, and and he kind of swooped that back a little bit farther into the quarter panel, and man, that was really trick and looked really good. And actually, had a quarter glass that went up and down, so I know uh, that took a lot of time and was really trick. And uh, he they built it for a company called Locar, who builds a lot of shifters and you know throttle pedal assemblies and stuff like that and all their cars are this certain color red and that that man that color looks good on just about everything so you know those were those are probably my two favorite cars out there uh there was <laughs> there was a um a prius that they had put a uh a late model hemi in i think it might have even been supercharged <laughs> that thing was that thing was pretty wild. Uh, they had a, um, like a kind of a little paper statue of Donald Trump in the driver's seat. Everybody was getting a kick out of that. Um, and then, uh, Troy Trepanier brought out a model, a sedan that he'd been toting around in bare metal for, I don't know, a year and a half or so. And they got it finished up. And that's the car that won the battle of the builders. And that, that car was uh, definitely on the money, kind of a, uh, you know, a really high dollar Model A sedan, which, you know, we talked about several episodes ago about how the Model A's are, are, are hitting the hot, hot rod world by storm right now. So, and then Andy Leach had his Model A coupe out there. That was a great eight car this year. Um, but there was... Those are really the cars that kind of stood out to me uh, that I really enjoyed looking at and um, looking at, you know, the different things that they came up with and um, choice of, you know, colors and different type materials and finishes and, and stuff like that. I was just wondering, I, I heard a lot about, um, and in the last couple episodes, we've talked about coach built, and I, I don't really call it coach built because it emulates something that exists, but I kept hearing about a coach built Tucker out there. Did you happen to pass by that, or was that in a different hall? I know the building's huge. so Yeah, it was actually in the uh, Exalta booth. Um, I'm not 100% sure if that's the coach built all aluminum body or not. I don't think it is. Uh, Rob Ida, his, he's the one that's building the Tuckers right now. Um, his grandfather was actually a Tucker dealer back in the day. So he's got a really, really high interest in Tuckers. And he's, he's building an all aluminum coach built Tucker right now. Um, I don't, that, that wasn't the car because I know, in the coach built one that he's building, it's got three bucket seats in it and they, they rotate. So the driver will be in the center like Tucker wanted to do. Um, so that, that wasn't the car, uh, but there was a finished twin turbo Tucker out there. Not sure, you know, what the body is, where it came from or anything like that. Oh. No, that that was one of Rob Ida's. This, this the one that he had there looked like a Tucker, 
uh, the one, the other one you're referring to, he's building two of them. I know of the other yeah. one he's building is the uh, Tucker torpedo or something that's off the original sketches. It has the three seats and things like that. But okay, okay, I just, I just went ahead and confirmed. Yeah, it was one of Rob Ida's that was out there. So okay, was it a coach built car as well? They yeah, they call it coach built. It was uh, that car did not exist before he started building it. Okay, that's cool. That's cool. It, it it was a hell of a car. Um, I'm I'm a big fan of Rob Ida. I like his style. I like what he does. Um, and, and you know, I walked around that car several times. It was uh, very well put together, very well built, and the fit and finish on it was really nice. Uh, very 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 cool car. I just want, I just want, was wondering what was going out there struck your fancy because now I got some things to go back and search for on the uh, internets to kind of take a look at. You did mention Goolsby Customs early on in that. Um, just a, another thing that may have passed over my social media, their Facebook or Instagram or wherever I was looking. Well, did they have a Fox Body Mustang there too in their booth or displaying somewhere, or am I just they, I'm mistaken with somebody else? No, they did. They debuted three cars, I believe, at SEMA. Um, One was the 44 that I talked about. The other one was, I believe, it was a 69 Firebird. Um, And then they debuted this Fox Body Mustang that they built for good guys. Um, With good guys opening up to 87, they thought it would be cool to build something that was, you know, later than 87. So apparently good guys has been knowing they were going to open it up for a while. Um, which, you know, I think Jonathan then put that car together pretty quick. I'm not exactly sure the timeline on it, but uh, it was cool. You know, it was painted good guys yellow with a little bit of a twist and had a coyote motor in it. And uh, it was, it was, it was a, it was a cool car for sure. Yeah. I'm thinking maybe I uh, should get off my butt and drive across town and <laughs> walk around the shop. <laughs> Well, I think I think Gillsby had they had five cars there this year. They had a um, thirty-two Roadster pickup that was in uh, BASF's booth. They had two cars in Good Guys booth. They built the giveaway car for next year, which is a sixty-seven or eight Camaro. Uh, then they debuted uh, the Fox Body Mustang. I think it was a seventy-nine model in Good Guys booth. They debuted the 44 convertible in low cars booth. And then they had the firebird in, I can't remember who's, who's booth that that was in, but uh, so yeah, I think they debuted three and had five out there. Well, it's something I've said ever since from moving to this state, it's amazing. The cars that you find in Alabama, I know maybe it's our labor rates cheap on building these things or something, but. We got to do we got to do something to get one of these shows in, in Alabama. I think we've got a couple of facilities that would be good for it. There were actually another car that was built in Birmingham that was debuted out there that I just forgot about that I really liked. Uh, it was a '72 Corvette built by Vinny's Hot Rod there in Alabaster. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I saw that on Scotty's probably your photo on Scotty D's page. That yep. was a good looking car. And, Vin, Vinny does some nice stuff. I've had to set up next to him at a couple of shows around here locally. And he's another one of the shops getting to be nationally known. So, And you're not going to find a better guy than Vinny. I mean, that dude, he's as humble as they come. And, you know, that, that Corvette was really, really cool. It was, that was actually, uh, I can't believe I forgot about it. Another one of my favorite cars out there, the way they threw that little bit of a blue, you know, stripe on the bottom of it and just a little hint of blue on that white and black Corvette was just really, really thought out very well. Since we're talking about these modified cars and custom cars and things that were are debuting at SEMA, we had a couple big things kind of hit the collector car news this week. We're going to try to touch on both of those, why they're, they're new, fresh, and relevant, especially sitting here on the 8th. They'll still be getting some coverage over the next couple of weeks and possibly for a couple of years to come. And the one that really I knew was coming, saw it coming, and like most legislation, 
nobody pays attention until it happens, and then everybody goes, how did this happen? And that was the announcement by the state of Texas that they're going to begin revoking titles for dune buggies, sand rails, etc. And they're deeming the cars rebodied, etc. And they cost them their safe, you know, safety aids, and they're unsafe, they're reckless, they're dangerous, etc. I mean, they and they've been looking at this since 2013, but they finally pulled the trigger and informed all of these owners this week that guess what? Your cars are worthless, at least in this state. And while this this says dune buggies and they're, you know, all of a sudden everybody's stepping up and filing lawsuits, et cetera, this is legislation. You had four years to do this. So who knows what will happen? Maybe we'll get lucky and SEMA and the the, um, Manx Club, et cetera, that are trying to pursue this, we'll have some luck in getting Texas to to revisit this and look at it. And if we remember the, um, oh, I'm forgetting what the name of the group is, named the uh, Myers Manx, is the uh, it's a historic vehicle association. The Myers Manx was the first car they added to their registry in 2014. So now they're technically banning classic cars. And that's where I see. I've always been a believer in you give them an inch, they'll take a mile, and you give them a mile, and they're going to they're gonna grab all they can. And why we're bringing it up on the show, and I want to get Will and Derek's feedback, is I see this, and I, I made a couple of public Facebook posts to some larger pages about it. We take away the dune buggies today. Tomorrow, the le- because they're unsafe, tomorrow the legislators look at it and go, hey, you know, cars before 1966 are unsafe because they weren't required to have seatbelts. So let's get rid of all of those. Nobody can drive those on the road. And then, well, three-point seatbelts didn't come out across the board until the late 70s. So oh, let's wipe out another 15 years of cars because they're unsafe. And then all of a sudden... They don't have airbags. Let's get rid of the cars without airbags. And, you know, I think the street ride community needs to pay attention. The kit car community is really paying attention to this because all of a sudden, a Myers Manx is just a Volkswagen Beetle with a different body on it. Yeah, it doesn't have a roof, but is a Beetle really that safe in an accident compared to a, you know, an open fiberglass car? You're going to die in both. <laughs> what, what, anybody have a thought on that? want to, rebut me or agree with me or tell me where I'm wrong. Uh, well, I guess I have mixed feelings on it. Um, obviously I'm someone that I love cars. I love collecting cars. I have my cars when I get them restored or up and running, whatever I'm going to do to them, I'm going to take them out. I'm going to drive them. It's part of the joy of having cars. It's, it's part of, it's, the biggest part of the hobby, these machines, cars are machines in the end, they're meant to be driven. They're meant to be out on the road. They're meant to be experienced. Hear it, smell it, feel it, all of it. And so I don't, I feel bad for all the people in Texas that are basically now having a major issue with trying to fight to keep what they love and it's going to be a, it's going to be a, a, probably a losing battle because like John said this is you know government this is how things work this is you had so much time to see the bill read the bill call your representatives and and voice your opinion and unfortunately sometimes i think you know the political world kind of rams these things through or hides them from the general public so they don't get a bunch of calls and things like that and you know it do, it is something we need to pay strong attention to because like john says you know where are they going to stop um you know if they take the dune buggies away if they take the sand rails away and they're using this excuse that it's because they're modified and they're unsafe yeah, we're we're talking about probably a large group of people putting this bill together that don't 
100% understand what most people put into building these things and try to make them somewhat safe and make them, there are a lot of people out there that I think maybe don't make them as safe as they should and, and cut corners. Um, but respectable shops, respectable owners are going to do what it takes to, you know, make them safe. And uh, at least me, and I'm sure Will does it at his shop. Anytime I work on a car, and I'm sure anytime Will works on a car, if we're modifying it or doing something that's going to be different, I'm always concerned with safety. Safety's first to me. You know, so I think we're looking at people that don't understand that part of the car hobby, you know, with the polit- some of the politicians. Um, but I also kind of have the feeling, and, and John and Will, you guys might remember this. Um, I think it might have been eight or ten years ago, uh, maybe even a little longer than that. But they introduced, they tried to introduce the clunker laws. You guys remember those? Oh, yeah. And everybody was up in arms that, you know, this was going to be the end of old cars. It was going to be the end of, you know, kind of everything, John, that you just said about this bill. And we never saw that actually come to fruition. And so it's kind of a mixed bag, I think. You know, we we see these bills come up, like the clunker laws, like this um, law coming out in Texas, and everybody worries about it. But in the past, we haven't seen it go that far. So I guess the question then becomes, how many of these bills does it take before it does start going that far? Um, and it is. I, and I'm not saying that because the clunker laws didn't go where they were, people thought they were going. That doesn't mean we don't need to be vigilant and pay attention. Because a lot of people, a lot of clubs fought back against the clunker laws. And I, I'm almost certain I recall reading a rebuttal to that from SEMA. Um, uh, do you remember that, Will? Yeah, I, I do. I, I think yeah. SEMA actually wrote a rebuttal to that, the clunker laws. Um, and it is, it's about staying vigilant and paying attention and, you know, really digging in and, and making sure we, you know, we pay attention and, and fight for what, those of us in this hobby and this profession want to keep doing with cars. And, you know, it's, I guess it's just a a question of any legislation is how hard is it going to be to fight back? I'm surprised that I hadn't seen, you know, I'm a member of SEMA that I hadn't seen emails and stuff about this law that passed in Texas. Um, I know I'm in Alabama, not in Texas, but generally uh, I forgot <clears throat> there was one that was, it was last year that man, they were, you know, once a week you were getting an email from them about some law they were trying to pass. I can't remember exactly what it was about. I remember, I remember reading it and, you know, sending a letter in and all that stuff. And uh, I think it wound up getting shot down. So, you know, SEMA, I'm sure SEMA knew about it and I'm sure people from the state of Texas got, you know, tons of emails from SEMA about it. And, you know, that's, that's one of the biggest things that SEMA does is try to keep these crazy laws from, from passing because you're right, John, you never know where it could go. I mean, it, it a law like that could easily uh, destroy my business if it, you know, passed and, and then it carried on and carried on and carried on. Uh, I would like to think that there would be an aftermarket company that came out with, you know, a standalone airbag system. Um, you know, I mean, we have standalone everything else. Why not a standalone airbag system? So, I mean, it it, it sucks to see stuff like that go through. Cause you never know where it's going to end, but you almost have to rely on the aftermarket to keep, to keep the old cars on the road, to keep them safe and, uh, or to government standards, whatever, you know, that may be. Um, but you know, touching back on what you were saying, Derek, that's, 
that's our biggest thing too is safety. You know, we're we're not going to send a car out on the road, even if it's even if it's going to a show. You know, like the Riddler, where most most of the cars that are Riddler cars are really not that drivable. Um, and you know, you may have a customer come into your shop and say, "I want to build a car to go to Detroit." I don't care if it ever sees the road; it's still got to be safe because if they sell it and it goes somewhere else. I mean, you just, you never know what's going to happen. If your name's on it and it, it breaks in half going down the road, well, that's, uh, that's your tail. You know, it ain't nobody else's but yours. So we always make sure that no matter what we're building a car to do, that, you know, it, it is uh, safety first. And I know somebody may bust my tail about it, about not putting rear view mirrors on a car or, or something like that but most of the time when they leave and and they go home to the owner they may not be shown with rear view mirrors or and all that stuff but when it leaves and goes home to the owner it'll have you know backup you know a lot of times backup cameras and rear view mirrors and all that stuff so uh, yeah safety safety's got to be number one when you're modifying vehicles so we see where this bill is actually potentially impacting everything and you you've got to pay attention to these things even if you think they don't affect you that's one of you know it's kind of one of my hobbies is to watch this uh, we've joked once or twice on the show about cigars and cigar there was a cigar mandate that was passed about two years ago and all of a sudden the big repercussions are beginning to show up on people's doorsteps now and they're going what what? Why, why are my cigars $2 more a piece? Why is this happening? Why don't I get free samples anymore? If you were paying attention in 12, 13, and 14, even into 15, when we were talking to you about this, it would have helped. There's a thing now with table saws and flesh detect, detection technology where they're wanting to... One company created this technology, tried to market it to all the table saw manufacturers and the table saw manufacturer said, no, it's a liability because if it doesn't work, we get sued. Well, now this company was forced into building their own saws, build their own saws. Now everybody wants the technology and gets mad because they want to license the technology or charge for it when they were forced to start a company because nobody believed in them in the first place. And now they're pushing to make this technology, um, a law to be put on all saws and obviously charge and profit from it. I don't have a problem with it. I mean, it is, to me, it's a no-brainer technology. It was the first time I saw the product 15 years ago. But you have to watch this stuff because it will affect you. If you're not for this, if you're not for paying an extra $1,000 for your saw or an extra $2 for your cigar or, cigar, or um, not only being able to look at your cars that sit static in the garage or if you take it to a racetrack or automotive country club to be able to use it because you can't drive your 1965 Mustang on the road anymore because it wasn't originally sold with seatbelts. You've got to be paying attention in the beginning because no matter what side of the political fence you're on, and we don't like to get too political, but this crosses all party lines, etc. no matter where you sit on it, if you're a car guy, there's a good chance that you could lose your car and there's nothing you can do about it and the value, etc., of that vehicle if this doesn't happen. And where this rolls us into is the other big news story this week or in the automotive world. Uh, and it's just came out today and it's starting to creep creep up on everybody. And I think think it'll probably be a little bit of a talk. And it goes back to a little bit of our Tesla talks and such, where Bob Lutz, no matter what you think of him, whether he's an, an idiot and he destroyed companies, uh, whether he's a savior of Chrysler for the second time after Iacocca, he is a big, big name in the automotive world. People follow him. And, you know, he was an investor in Fisker. He's tried to bring the Fisker back with LS Power. I think he's retired from the automotive industry again, but he made the statement that no one will own a car in 30 years. 
maybe it, that's a little rushed to the fact, but he, he put out this article where he believes that over the next 20 to 30 years, once we achieve 30 to 40 percent autonomous driving, people will start making cars illegal. Governments will because it becomes more efficient. People will begin to realize that the human being behind the wheel is the dangerous portion of an automobile and a computer can make the decision better. And it can make the decision better if all the computers are talking to each other. So I, I do believe his, his statement that at some point in time, we, you know, it won't be the Jetsons with our flying cars and fold into suitcases. It'll be, as it, I want to say minority report or judge dread where the car, you, you get into these pods and they drive you places. That was Minority Report. And Minority, okay. Uh, it was also, I believe, Judge Dredd because the I think so, yeah. cars and stuff. The the these fleets of cars will replace our daily drivers, and automobiles as we know it now will go the way of the horse, where people will still have them and still use them. But as he says in the article, and again, I kind of agree with him. They you will go like you go to. Um, Keeneland, or you go to Churchill Downs to enjoy your horse, you're going to go to places like Autobahn and Mon Monticello or Montevallo, uh, these automotive country clubs that will have driving trails, kind of like you go four-wheeling with your Jeep now. If you really want to go off-roading, you go to these off-road trails, or you'll go to national parks that'll have roads that are maintained for use of your vehicle. And you'll call a pod and you'll, pod, you'll load your pod on this little trailer and the pod will take you there. And yeah, the upside is the pod's going to take you there at 140 miles an hour. You're going to lose some of that pleasure of driving. So one of our Facebook commenters today on the post said, oh, I don't think it'll, it'll, it'll be that quick. It can't be 20 or 30 years. It'll be multi-generational. I don't think so. As quickly as I've seen th things change in my 45 years, 46 years on this planet, from no video games to video games, from no cell phones to everybody has to have a cell phone and now it has to Bluetooth into the car, I see it being ra rapid. And I mean, in the 18 hours that I've known about this article, I went from, you know, I kind of agree with it to I was driving home, getting ready for the podcast tonight and way home from work. I was sitting there thinking, you go, I could really deal with a pod Monday through Friday and taking me to and from work. Look at what else I could do. And then on the weekend, enjoy my car. But so even at my advanced age, I'm guess I would conform fairly quickly. I could see in 20 years me, me agreeing with that. Um, I don't know how you guys feel on it. I know we've touched on it in like the electric car episode. And sometimes when we've talked about Tesla and autonomous driving, have either one of you read this article and have any opinions? And again, agree, disagree, prove me wrong. I, I am going to be an old man that goes to jail a lot. Um, if this happens, that's, that's basically what's going to happen. Um, because I'm not going to give up driving my cars. <laughs> Um, uh, we're not saying you have to give up your car. You just have to go to a designated place to use your car. Well, but that's the thing. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to go to a designated place. I'm going to get in my car and I'm going to drive it. And that's why I'll be in jail a lot because I'll get arrested and thrown in jail and then get out and drive a car again. <laughs> It's it's an interesting time in the automotive industry. It is because we are on the verge of another major change in transportation ideals. What we see as the preferred mode of transportation is going to change. And John, you were alluding to it a little bit that at one time there were horse and buggies and people rode horses and rode horse and buggy and bicycled everywhere or walked everywhere. And then all of a sudden this newfangled machine called the horseless carriage or the automobile shows up and believe it or not in major cities, the automobile was the green option. It was the cleaner option of transportation 
Because in the major cities like New York, Boston, places like that, the amount of animal waste, horse manure, uh, dead horses laying in the street that was piling up was actually causing more diseases in those major cities than most other things at the time. And some machine that could propel itself and put out this little bit of cloudy exhaust was a much cleaner option. It cost a lot of money in the beginning and only rich people really could afford it. But by the introduction of the automobile in America really happens in about 1896. And by you know 1922-23, half of the automobiles on the road in the United States were Model T Fords, and many, many, many Americans had automobiles. That's the expanse of 1896 to 1923 is thirty some years. I'm not great at math. I'm a historian. Um, so to say for Bob Lutz to say that no one is going to be driving automobiles in 20 to 30 years, we have a precedent for that. We have something that we can look back on and say, well, it did happen that fast with the horseless carriage and what becomes the automobile. And as John, as you alluded to, it happened with the home computer system. It happened with cell phones. It happened with all these things. It is going to be a choice by the American people, I think, personally, that if enough people in the U.S. decide they want to keep driving cars, it's probably going to be difficult to change that. It could probably be done, but it'll be difficult. But the other thing we have to look at is the fact that most American youth at this point that are 18, well, actually turning, you know, 14 to 16 years old right now have absolutely no interest in driving an automobile. The majority of them. I know there are still young kids out there. Hopefully we have some listening to the podcast that love the automobile, they love automobile history, they want to be in this hobby, they want to be in this industry. But the majority of of the youth out there right now, for some reason, have absolutely no interest in the automobile. And you know, we've probably hit on this, or we've I we've hit on this a little bit in other shows. And it's a question, it becomes a big question of market price of the automobile, the youth seeing that they can't afford certain cars, the whole dynamics of the economy in the automobile right now, and people just being more interested in other things than driving. Like John said, you know, he all of a sudden, eight hours after reading this article, was thinking, hmm, you know, Monday to Friday, riding in a pod back and forth to work, well, I could, you know, I'm sure you were thinking you could work on podcast stuff. You could work on other, you know, per yeah, order. I could edit a podcast. You could edit a podcast. You could order more cigars. You could uh, come up with new cigar blends. Um, you know, all those things. You could design new uh, projects for woodworking. You could do all those things in that. Uh, yeah, I don't know. How long's your commute to work, John? 35 minutes give or take 35 minutes at 65 mile an hour on average. Yeah. Since police officers listen to that, what would this look like? You don't have to say where you live so they can't do the math. So it becomes now about a, let's say 15 minute drive at 120 mile an hour in one of these pods. If, if we can realistically get to that point, I mean, in your case, you'd add another 40, 45 minutes of other things done than driving to your life. Is that good or is it bad? Which way are we going to view that? And that's where I think the car people, and we that's one reason we do this podcast. It's one reason we're talking about this is... Well, like I said, in 12 hours, I, I, I'm, I'm conforming. I'm assimilating to the Borg here. 
I don't necessarily want that to happen. I do enjoy, I mean, this is one of the few commutes home tonight that I actually listen to music as opposed to digested podcasts and information. It was a fun drive. I had the sunroof open. It was a little bit cool outside. Uh, One of the few times I used that option in my car. But so it's fun. It's enjoyable. And we're here to preach to you that this could happen. If you want it to happen, just sit back and let it happen. If you want, again, your flesh detecting technology on your table saw, if you don't want dune buggies on the road, you don't want custom cars, just sit back and eventually the pod will take over and that's where it's at. But sitting here with no driving gloves, we're discussing ways of the collector car hobby. And this is going to have an impact on the collector car hobby. What ends up happening, whether, you know, just because we can't go out and buy a Ford Fusion to drive us to work that day, what can we do to keep the collector car hobby alive and still be able to use these cars without having to have a multi-thousand dollar a year membership to an exclusive racetrack, etc.? Because even though that might sound like a cool idea, it's going to be an expensive idea if that happens. I I can see it happening, you know, in in the cities and which you know I mean you already have a lot of public type transits in in major cities. Um, I mean, a lot of people in New York and San Francisco and Atlanta, you know, they don't even own cars. They hop on the on the public transit, you know, system and and away they go. So, I mean. For that to happen in, you know, nowhere Alabama, that's, uh, I mean, man, you talk about billions and billions and billions of dollars that's going to have to be spent to create these, you know, new road systems. I, I can only imagine, you know, that. Uh, maybe they do talk to each other on the roads that are already existed. Um, but that would, that would be something that I could see is if it does exist, you know, they're going to have to keep, you know, some sort of personal transportation out there. I'll be, I mean, as impatient as we, we are, yeah. Creating a pod to pick you up at work you know, every day, say at 6.30 in the morning. But, you know, what if you're spur of the moment and you want to go to Walmart at midnight? Are you going to sit at home and wait for 20 minutes for a pod to come pick you up? Oh, I'd be, boy, I'd be fighting mad. So, I mean, I, I'm sure they, they've already been talking about it and people have brought that up. But, I mean, I, I it's hard for me to see that transition in you know the rural areas of america in the next 20 years it's just um maybe they'll have a lane for pods and a lane for you know people in their personal vehicles i I mean i don't know i just uh i'll tell you i'll I'll be one fighting it because i don't want it to happen and i enjoy driving my vehicle to work every day um I enjoy getting in my vehicle and, and driving across the United States and, you know, traveling on historic roads. And, you know, I mean, to me, that's kind of uh, one of the, the coolest things about American history and automobile history is, is, is hopping in your car and traveling down Route 66. And, uh, of course, you know, that a lot of Route 66 is gone now, but you know, traveling the interstate systems or back roads and seeing the seeing the United States and you know driving down Highway One in California, I mean that that's just uh, that's just one of those things that as Americans, it's hard for me to see them take it away from us, and you know, in the in Northeast Alabama, where I'm at, there's still most of the kids in the high school, you know, the, the 13, 14, 15 year old kids that are in middle school, they can't wait to get their driver's license still. 
but I know I've, I've got a, a cousin that, that grew up in the Atlanta area and she was 17, almost 18 before she even went and got her learner's permit. She didn't care nothing about driving. And that just, that just blew my mind when she told me that I'm like, I was just, I couldn't believe it. And I mean, I was driving when I was driving to football practice when I was 13, 14 years old. Uh, I couldn't wait to get my driver's license so I could be on the road legally. Um, but I don't know. I hope it don't happen. But unfortunately, I, I can I can see it in the future. But I don't I don't see it in my area in in the next twenty years. You see, and I guess that's an interesting point because I've been a city dweller for we could say virtually all my life. Not big, big, major cities, but significant populations and. Even though mass transit isn't the best, uh, it's you know it's always been around me and always been available. I uh, just recently ex- had a conversation with somebody who flew into Washington D.C. and called their Uber, which we'll pretend is they called their pod, and the pod was sent to the wrong address. Actually, it was sent to their their home, not the airport that they had just flown a thousand miles to. And so they ordered a second pod. Second pod went to their home address. So got frustrated and tried out the Washington, D.C. public transportation system and learned, oh, this is great. Next time I go to Washington, which they do quite often, I'm using public transportation. So now Uber's, the pod has lost that literally four pods to move the people around fast. But the thing is, I always look at it as uh, there's two classes in this country, and it's not race, socioeconomic, or anything. We have the the class that has high-speed internet and the class that doesn't. And everybody thinks everybody in the world has high-speed internet. <laughs> and it just sh- shows up at your house. And I can stream Netflix, and I can wa- I get Sling, and I can get Hulu, and my Amazon Prime so much better because I can download all this, download all this stuff on the internet. I don't know what the real number is, 30, 40% of the country doesn't have high-speed internet available to them because they live in the country. Two out of the three people on this podcast have high-speed internet. One person doesn't, and they they make do with technology that really doesn't even, you know, helps them with it, but still limits the ability to stream. I have members of my family that are in that same situation that while they have their multi-hundred-thousand-dollar mini McMansion and their multiple car garages and things, they can't get high-speed internet. They can't watch Netflix. We ha- there, There's that, that tier system. And with Will's conversation there, there's something I never thought of being that city dweller. He's right. Where he lives, there's he's going to have to wait 20 minutes for a pod. Where I live, these pods are going to run up and down the street. I have 20, 30,000 cars a day go by my house daily. If it goes to pods, I'm going to have 20, 30,000 pods go by my house daily. And some of them will be empty. I'll push the button. I'll walk out in front yard and oop, there'll be one that'll stop for me. And, but Will's right is we forget about the rural community. And so much of this country is rural. Look at some of the, um, Google Maps from overnight and look at the lights. And those will tell you where, what obviously Bob Lutz said will not apply. And, you know, Will makes me rethink that, is that maybe it won't, won't take that long because even though, as Derek said, it took 20, 30 years to totally eliminate the horse, it took more than 20, 30 years to totally eliminate the horse from all walks of life because if I remember back, my mom's told me stories of my grandfather living in one of these rural communities, a farming community, and they still used horses into the 40s and 50s and didn't have indoor plumbing. And mm-hmm. there's another one of those multiple tier, you know, people with indoor plumbing, people without, people with electricity, people without. Yes, I can. I guess I'll modify the statement. I can see in 20 years that being the way of life in the city. And then you go to your rental car company if you're going to go cross country, you know, because Amtrak's not going to all of a sudden have 50 million miles of rail to get me to Chicago. So. <laughs> and, and, you know, 
we were actually talking a little bit about this uh, before the podcast about a show that Derek's been watching. You know, what about the people that live off the grid? I mean, they're, they're people, this is kind of a new, I'm not going to say a phenomenon, but, you know, that, that that's becoming more and more and more popular. People with tiny houses that live off the grid. What about them people? I mean, they, a lot of them don't even have cell phones. They have no way of accessing the internet at all. What about them people? They're not going to, you know, change their lifestyle if they've been doing that for, for, you know, 15, 20, 30 years. And there's no way that the government should be able to come in there and make them change their lifestyle. I mean, I mean, there's, there's another side of it right there. Well, right now, the government's making a lot of that living off the grid illegal. And since we're a podcast that broadcasts on the Internet, do we really care about those people? Well, they, they don't they, they don't matter. Well, they, they oh, don't wait, matter. They, but let let's flip it and look at, you know, you're saying the government's making it illegal to live off the grid or they're passing laws to make it, you know, difficult to live off the grid isn't that what Texas is trying to do to the car hobby? Is it not just another passion of someone that's being stripped away? Exactly. And that's exactly it is we've got to watch every little bit of this because it's so easy to get away. And, you know, one morning you're driving your dune buggy to, to work or even on a Saturday to go to a car show. And the next week, you're getting into this nondescript egg that's, you know, rushing you over to big box store to get whatever you want because you couldn't get it online. So there's still a guy that that lives in our area that rides his horse to the grocery store. You know, he don't he he doesn't own a car, and um, you know he's got everything right here in Hoax Bluff that he needs. Now he does. He lives on the grid. He's not a um, you know, he don't live in a tiny house off the grid or nothing like that, but, um, he, um, he rides his horse to the store and, uh, buddy picks him up and takes him to work and he don't own a car and that, that's his, that's his mode of transportation. So it's taken, let's see here, a car, 125, 130 years old. See, it, it's taken more than 30 years for the <laughs> <laughs> Some people that come around, and I have a feeling at this point he'll never come around. But he's a young guy. You know, he, he's only probably four or five years older than me. So, I mean, I say young guys. He's in his early 40s, you know, and he he loves rodeo and, uh, and, and stuff like that. And, I mean, that's, um, that's his way of life, and that's what he likes, and uh, that's how he lives. Well, and if we look at it, we got to think that there's also still, and although it's a religious situation, there's still the Amish in this country that use horse for everything, you know, farming for their mode of transportation. We're not going to be able to take their horses off the roads, so they're still going to be in the Amish communities the concern of other things being on the roadways other than these pods. I think another thing we have to look at uh, with a statement like this from someone like Bob Lutz, we have to look at a changing infrastructure of an industry as well. If things move to complete pod technology or whatever this is. And I think dissecting a little bit of, of Bob Lutz's statement is kind of important as well, but this is going to basically wipe out the dealership infrastructure because are you going to be selling these pods to individuals or is this a, you know, who is, is the government going to be running this? Who is going to own and maintain and operate these and keep this going? You know, what does that infrastructure look like? But also if, if you really dissect what, at least part of what Bob Lutz said in this article, which is, 
let me get to the quote here. Quote, now we are approaching the end of the line for the automobile because travel will be in standardized modules. The end state will be the fully autonomous module with no capability for the driver to exercise command. Now, is he saying that these are going to be standardized modules that are not owned by anyone or are these standardized modules still vehicles that people are going out and have to buy, but they just have no interaction in driving them. You know, I don't know. Walmart will own them. Okay. Or actually it's (laughs) probably, probably Amazon. Yeah. There you go. Amazon. (laughs) But it is a question. What, what, if the end of driving automobiles is in the near future, 20 to 30 years, what is the infrastructure that goes behind that? How is that infrastructure going to be built in 20 to 30 years? They better start doing it right now. They may be, I don't know, but I'm just saying... I know how long it took them to pave uh, uh, I-59 from Fort Payne to the Georgia state line. And <laughs> dang, that took forever. And now it's still, now it's garbage again. I don't think there's, infa- I don't think there's infrastructure that has to be built for this to take place because the pods technically already exist. And if, Tesla would not go bankrupt and collapse and fall to pieces, as everybody thought last week. The Model 3 is your perfect pod. You get all the other cars off the road, those cars will be able to drive around themselves and run around using the existing infrastructure, using the existing roads with their um, autonomous technology. I don't think we're that far away from the cars actually being able to do it. We won't have to build a rail system or put special electronics in in the streets, the cars are smart enough to do that themselves. And that's why I do think that the 20 to 30 year rule is probably legitimate in the, especially in the big cities or the bigger cities. I can, you know, Paris is already talking about legislation and has outlawed cars after a certain age. And so is London that if you're older than a certain age of car, you cannot drive on the streets or heavily taxed. Japan does the same thing with their cars. After a certain age, the cars go go away, and that's why we have all these JDM motor swaps in the U.S. for so cheap, because once you hit twenty or 30,000 miles, they tax the cars so bad, it's cheaper to buy a new car. And that's the way this country will will fall if we don't keep standing up for our rights. I think I'm going to slightly disagree with you, John, in there may not be a road infrastructure that needs to be built, but what about the technology infrastructure behind it? How how are you going to call a pod? How are you going to do what is what is going to be the infrastructure that's used to make the call to make sure the pod is actually sent to the right location because even Uber can't do that, as you've said. Uh, What is that infrastructure? And also, what is the economic answer to the collapsed infrastructure of dealerships and the auto industry in America? What happens in that situation. And so it's not really the building of an in- infrastructure, but what takes the place or what makes up for that major loss of an industry in this country. Because if you think about it, if we do this, you've just wiped out all the almost uh, uh, probably a, a large number. I mean, there's still going to be some people building these pods, uh, Tesla. But (laughs) what about all of the automotive employees and the UAW employees in this country that now do not have jobs building automobiles that are being sold at dealerships? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, restaurant service industry. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, I mean, the big three has kept a lot of stuff out of legislation. You know, I mean, I remember reading a book about the the hundred mile a gallon carburetor that supposedly one of the big three bought and destroyed or whatever. You know, and and if it's going to kill them, then they're going to just kill it. I would I would think anyway, uh, because they got they got the pull to make it happen, and then you get you know SEMA behind behind it. Um, I don't know. It, it's hard for me to visualize. I, I, I you know, it 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 really just completely taken over. I'm not saying it's not going to happen because eventually I think it probably will for the people that don't like driving that can't drive. I mean, it could be a huge help for people that, that are, that are blind, that, that can't physically get out and drive and somebody has to come pick them up. That gives them a, you know, a sense of freedom to, to go about and move about and not have to worry about, um, you know, having a wreck or something like that. So, you know, I'm not saying it's all bad, but I can't see it completely taken over you know i mean i could you imagine going down the road and not seeing a chevrolet or a ford or a dodge i mean daggum that'd be that'd be terrible can you imagine going down the road and not seeing a conestoga wagon or a you know a brown horse and a white horse and a mustang and a pinto and <laughs> in some places i've lived uh, it was hard to believe that i wouldn't drive down the road and see a horse and buggy <laughs> <laughs> I, I have lived yeah. in parts of this country where the Amish are pretty prevalent. I think the infrastructure is kind of there. You're right. It's not It's not perfect right now, Derek, but there's no reason that Uber doesn't take over this pod or Lyft or something. And I just get on, I push my app and it uses location services on my phone to send that pod to where my phone is. It, you know, that that's there. The dealer, the dealer network is under attack right now, and guess what? It's by Musk and Tesla, and they're mm-hmm. really trying yep. to change the way that car- cars are sold. And Amazon's trying to get into the game. You can technically buy a BMW on Amazon right now. I think the dealer dealerships are going to change. And you're right; we're, you know there will be job losses, but it's no different than a lot of the manufacturing that's went overseas or has disappeared because of automation. But I toured a a facility locally a couple of weeks ago and I never thought of it. Their build somebody's got to build the automation. Somebody's got to build the robot. One of the, he had a, this robot in there that's going to a manufacturing facility and he's got 30 people there that do these individual jobs. So he's got 30 people that are going to help build this robot to go to a manufacturing facility. He had 30 people there building a robot to, I really can't say what it was to do, but it's something so mundane you never would think that a 80-foot assembly line is required to do this in the food service industry. And it's something, you know, I never, never, ever thought of it. And then the, that has, it had to be done with a certain product because if it's done with another product, it would affect the taste of the food. And then they had to develop a way to use that product because you couldn't print on that product. It was all, you know, all of this, it, I don't know how to say it without getting overly political is I don't believe a year ago, I would have believed a lot more of that. All our manufacturing has went away because we don't have these factory jobs and we're not building this stuff in, Jay Leno can't get a differential made for his Duesenberg in the United States and has to go overseas. I kind of disagree with that, especially after visiting this place. The jobs have changed. They've become a little bit more techie, but they're there. The, the manufacturing jobs are there. They're just not in these big, massive uh, River Rouge plants. They're in these small little... 10,000, 15,000 square square foot metal buildings on the edge of every city that are producing these items. So the jobs will transfer. There will be some job loss and, you know, unemployment, but we keep losing all these manufacturing jobs. We keep losing all these manufacturing jobs. And 
what's the unemployment rate today? 2.9% in the country. So as all of this stuff's went away, people have managed to stay employed. Those that have wanted jobs pretty much have been able to transition into something. Maybe not the ideal picture-perfect job, but, you know, it's it's the world we live in. It's a steamroller. It's going to crush some of us. We don't know what's going to happen. This is the No Driving Gloves podcast with four guy, or excuse me, three guys with many, many decades of collector car knowledge trying to tell you our job depends on you wanting the collector car. There, there could be, there could be four of us, but my psychiatrist said we're okay today, so there's only one of me. <laughs> I was going to say, do we need to say anything else? But how about we just go ahead, close it up there. We're we're going a little bit long again, but we've all agreed to kind of disagree on the last one. All agreed to agree on the middle, and we need now we have to actually go find a new third co-host because we have to shoot Will because he talked about Vegas. So. Nice job, Will. See you later. <laughs> We'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for joining us uh, for this episode of No Driving Gloves. Later, everyone. Later. Adios.